Well, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, so if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and grab them or turn them on if you use a digital one, and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you are visiting with us, either you are just your first time here, you're from Drumheller and you're here, or you're traveling through, you've picked probably one of the worst Sundays to come. It's going to be a, a really hard service for you. No, it is going to be a difficult passage, though. So, And I just want to precursor once more that the topic today is on sexual immorality, and we're going to be dealing with uh, the subject of human sexuality and other things like that. So if you do have kids, it's not going to be explicit, obviously, but uh, they are welcome to join us downstairs. If you have teens, this message is for them. Don't send them away, okay? So they want to hear this as well. But we're going to be in chapter 6, talking about the importance of our body and sexuality and how what are we do with our bodies actually matters to God. And one of the beautiful things about the book of 1 Corinthians is that it takes a lot of our cultural issues that we are facing today, that we have lots of questions about today, and it gives us gospel answers and principles to those questions. Now, these messages are never easy. They are necessary. We must look at them. That's why we practice expository preaching, that we walk verse by verse through the Bible so we don't skip over these difficult spots. And I want you to know, though, as we go to these hard spots in the Bible, even if you're a visitor, you're welcome to come and speak with me afterwards. And let's chat about the sermon. Let's chat about the scripture. And if you can't have time today, we can throughout the week as well. Because I understand that the truth of scripture is hard pill to swallow at times. It goes against our sinful nature and what we determine to be true. And our first reaction when scripture cuts us as the double-edged sword it is, is to reject it, to, to dispel it. But we would be very unwise to do that. So today we're going to set the scene for t- part two of 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians. Part one focused a lot on the problems of division in the church. We've been talking about that for weeks now. And we talked just not last week because we're in the park, but the week before we talked about lawsuits. And now before we break for the summer and spend some time in the Psalms together, Paul is setting the scene for part two, which deals with a lot of questions about what we all might have questions about, about sex, marriage, and singleness. But we will tackle all of that in the fall. But for now, we will dip our toes into it. Actually, we're going to jump right along into it. We, we, we dipped our toes back in chapter 5. Now we're jumping into the deep end just to wrestle your feathers a little bit, and then we'll go to the Psalms, okay? It will be a really good time as Paul takes us deeper into the biblical principles behind our bodies and behind sex. Again, we will not be explicit, but we will, we will deal with what the Bible lays out for us. Remember what I said in chapter 5, that Corinth was a very sexualized culture. They even had a verb that was coined for them to be Corinthianized. And if someone says you were Corinthianized, they said you have become sexually deviant. Corinth had over a thousand prostitutes. Some historians even suggest that every one in every 30 people you saw walking around Corinth was probably a prostitute. One in 30. So it's not surprising that the church dealt with these things. And by the way, this should also be a source of encouragement to some of us. Because some stats suggest that people who have negative sexual past feel most uncomfortable when it comes to church. And they feel like they need to keep all of that quiet because they're worried if someone finds out the church is going to disown them. And sadly, that has happened a lot in the past. But may that never happen here in in Fellowship Drumheller. Amen? 
But take courage that some of Jesus' original followers included people who had sexual dysfunctional past, and his earliest churches were filled with people with all sorts of sexual issues. And the modern church has failed by sticking our noses up in the air with a holier-than-thou attitude and pushing people out of the church who Christ has invited in. And we must stop that. And we see in Corinth that the problem, though, is not their sexual past. It's that their past is still their present. They had many people running around the church claiming that the occasional visit to a prostitute was no big deal. Maybe some were saying things like, ah, you know, it's just biology, Paul. Calm down. When you're hungry, you eat. And we apply the same logic to our desire for sex. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wants to show that there is a spiritual dimension to sex because God made us something called a psychosomatic unity. There's your big word for the day. A psychosomatic unity. What does that mean? That means God has designed that your soul your psycho, and your body, your soma, are one. And you can't neatly separate the two. And it's important that you have to remember that the Corinthians bought into the classic Greek understanding of their body, that the body doesn't matter. What you do with the physical doesn't matter. All that matters is the spiritual. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ was folly to them. That's why Paul said that it's a stumbling block. The resurrection is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. Because the Greeks didn't think the body had a purpose. What you did with it today didn't matter in eternity. Because all that matters is the spiritual. So what we see here is in this passage is going to be a lot of clarifications of the importance of the physical body. And the beliefs that surround it. That we are a spirit and body. And you can't neatly separate the two. Yes, at death, they are separated. But we are created as, as humans to have bodies. Which is why, maybe you've wondered this, which is why we have so many promises to the glorified body. Because we are meant to have a body. Yes, when you, if you die today, you will be spirit. But there will be a day when your body comes back to you. And it's not going to have a six-pack and abs, and you're not going to be seven, foot, seven feet tall, okay? Like, but it's coming back to you. So with that, Paul is going to argue, because our bodies and souls are one, sex is far more than just a meaningless physical activity. Sex has an extremely spiritual dimension to it. So with that context, let's go to our verses today. I hope you have your Bibles. It will not be on the screen because I want you in your Bibles, okay? So verse 9, starting in verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revivalers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God, And this is by no means an exhaustive list. If you're going, hey, my sin's not on here. I'm free. You know, I'm good to do whatever I want. You're missing the point. Where your eyes should be focused in this text is that the unrighteous, no matter what action you're doing that makes you unrighteous, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And sexual sin is not the only sin that is listed there, but look how many times it is mentioned. There's the sexually immoral, that's a broad term. There is the adulterers, and then there are the, homosexual, the homosexuality. These are three different sexual categories. And then Paul gives the most beautiful gospel reminder to us in his readers in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How amazing is that? We're going to flesh that out a little bit more at the end of the sermon, but for now, Paul is saying, you no longer are the unrighteous. God has made you righteous through Jesus Christ. So why are you going back to the filth when you are going to inherit the kingdom of God? Why are you being like a dog who returns to his vomit? You are the righteous. Remember who you are. God has washed you, he says. God has sanctified you, meaning you're becoming more like Christ. And God has justified you. This is a legal term, meaning in God's courtroom, which is the only courtroom that we should be worried about as believers, in God's courtroom, your life, the verdict on your life has been stamped not guilty. Why are you messing around? Why are you running back to these old ways? Paul is saying God has justified you, not because you deserve it, because none of us deserve it, but we have it because Jesus was faithful in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And now he has planted the Holy Spirit inside of us who has given us power to live the life he has called us to. He is reminding the Corinthians and us that we are to live in light of the gospel. Who are we in Christ? Let's live like that. And then in verse 12, he goes on to correct their thinking around Christian liberty, which we all need at times. Verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now look at your Bibles. Do you notice there's quotes around that? What Paul is doing is he's quoting here a common slogan that was either part of the Corinthian culture, and they've just adopted it, or it's something that Corinthian Christians have started to say to justify their sins. And Paul is quoting them to rebut them. I, I, it, it would be like if I were to say a common quote today. Like, Paul's not saying this to so that he agrees with. I hear so many Christians quote this. Oh, I can go do this because, you know, it, it, you know, it might not be lawful for you, but it, it, it is for me. That's not what Paul's saying. He's quoting a, a, a slogan that's thrown around. It'd be like if I said, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Right? You all know what I'm trying to imply there. Now, since I said that, that doesn't mean I agree with that horrendous statement, but rather I'm bringing to light something that our culture says and believes, and I want to offer you an alternative to that, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's rebutting it, and he's offering an alternative. And what we see, the alternative that he gives, and he's going to give a couple more to some other slogans, but the one he gives to this one is that I will not be dominated, nor will I be mastered by anything. What is he saying? Just because I've been freed by Christ, that I'm free to live in Jesus, doesn't mean that I'm just going to give myself carelessly away to sinful activities or desires. He's trying to show the Corinthians how insane this thinking really is. Just because your body tells you it wants something doesn't mean it's good or should be practiced. Like my body tells me quite often, Aaron, go to Tim Hortons and get 12 donuts, man, and just eat them. It's ridiculous. It's a real problem. And then I bring Tyler into it too. Hey, you want to go get 12 donuts and split them? Six each. It's not too bad. If I were to do that, that would be a bad decision. It might feel good in the moment, but I'm going to pay for it with my health. 
Our bodies tell us to do many things. If I get cut off in traffic, my first reaction is, I'm going to get even with that guy. I'm going to get angry. But that doesn't mean I should. Scripture is to be the arbiter of what is true and directs our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, informing our minds and our reasons, and tells us what is right and how we should behave and live our lives, not our bodily urges. Those are going to tell you so many different things. When I don't eat enough, ask my wife, I get very, very hangry. If I were to listen to my bodily urges at that point, I wouldn't be doing some really good things. Don't listen to your bodily urges. Listen to scripture and eat a Snickers bar, okay? (laughs) Paul is saying, don't allow yourself to be mastered by worldly things. Jesus has freed you, and he has become your master, meaning be dominated by Jesus. Let Jesus be the master of your life. Paul goes on in verse 13 addressing another Christian slogan. He says, starting in 13, he says, Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So depending on what translation you're using, I use the ESV, and it puts the quote right after food. But most scholars agree, and I would agree with them, that the quote should actually be extended to, and God will destroy both uh, the body and food, or one or the other. Um, and uh, because in the Greek, when everything's just squished together, they don't use quotes, it's really hard to read. Um, and so they're saying there should probably be quotes around here, because when you do that, it puts quotes in line with the Greek thinking that the first half of the quote is all about food being for the stomach, right? That stomach. Stomach is being for the food, meaning, hey, when I'm hungry, I eat. And then they would apply that logic to their desire for sex. So I'm to satisfy that desire if I have it, no matter where I get it. It's just a natural reaction. And then the second half of that quote would be, but God will do away with both of them. And this idea that God was mo- is mostly unconcerned with the physical idea and that he only cares about the spirit. This is very Greek thinking. Their thinking was one day that he's going to do away with all of it with their physical bodies, and what will only remain is their spirit. This, I hinted at it earlier, but this is called platonic dualism. It's the belief that the physical body is basically worthless and only the spirit matters. You all know the name Plato. He was a huge figure in ancient Greece, and where he philosophized was not far from Corinth in the day. And his ideas had a major influence on this part of the world and their thinking. But the problem with this Greek thinking is that it's inconsistent with the truth of Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible teach that God is going to do away with your bodies. The opposite is actually true. That God is going to resurrect our bodies and glorify our bodies. So the Corinthian lie about sex has two parts that is rooted in their understanding of the physical. The first is sex is just physical. It's like any other biological need and what you do with your body has no bearing on your soul. And these lies, church, are still prevalent today. I hear them all the time. Things like casual sex between two consenting adults doesn't hurt anybody, right? We just had some fun for a while. We were both lonely. It's no big deal. There are no strings attached. Or sadly, in the marriage context, which is becoming so large, let's have an open marriage. It's just a harmless affair, just to break up the monotony. We both agree on it. It's not going to hurt anybody. What could go wrong? 
What could go wrong? Lots could go wrong. People spread this lie that sex is just physical and that it's just biology. So it doesn't matter as long as everyone is on the same page about it. Another one that is rampant in our world is that it doesn't matter who I have sex with. It doesn't matter about that, who my partner is. All that matters is I love him. Love is love after all. And that's all that God is caring about is that you love him. He doesn't care about who you're in relationship with. Just figure out what works for you because all that God has truly cared about is that you're an honest person who loves other people and you're happy. And that's a lie. This is just another way of saying that the physical body doesn't matter. Only the spirit matters. So yes, the Corinthian lie of sex is alive and well in our world. And Paul gives us a counter position. He gives us the biblical position starting in verse 13. And again, this is the word of God. These are not my words. He says, food is meant for the body, uh, for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That's a direct uh, refutation of platonic thought. And then he goes into verse 16, uh, 15, sorry, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying is that sex is a very spiritual act and it makes you one flesh with that person whether you're married or not. And what's even more audacious is Paul is saying is that if you have Christ in you, that you are trying to make Christ become one with that person who may not have Christ. You're trying to force him to become part of that body because you can't separate body from soul. And Paul's answer to the Corinthian lie is that sex is not just biology. It's not just biology. There's something deeply spiritual about it. Now, before we unpack that, Paul's reasoning, I would just like to say that we all actually agree with that, whether we preach the other way or not. If we say it is just physical, at the end of the day, fundamentally, you believe that sex is more than just a physical act. I won't go into detail, but crimes involving sex hit us at a core more deeply than other crimes committed. When sex is forced in unsolicited manners involving all age ranges, we have a deep rage that sits in our souls against those actions. And people who have unfortunately experienced that uh, unsolicited sex, they need lots of counseling. And here's the sad part. Statistically speaking, these crimes go the least reported because they carry with them a great amount of trauma and shame that the victim doesn't even want to talk about. Because sex is more than just physical. Or why is adultery in a marriage so hard to overcome if sex is just physical? Oh, it's just an animal instinct. He's just getting it somewhere else. Or why are someone, some people's greatest regrets in their life sexual? Statistically speaking, that's a major category. You see what I'm getting at? I know this is uncomfortable. I don't enjoy talking about this. But we must understand that if sex was just physical, those categories that I briefly touched on wouldn't be as serious to us as they are. But here's the thing. They are. Because they hit at our deepest selves. 
because it's more than just a physical action. It also has spiritual connections. So here's what Paul says, his, his rebuttal towards the Corinthian lie. First, he says that God created the soul and body to function as one in verse 16 and 17. You can't do something with your body and exclude your soul. There's no on and off switch. Okay, I'm going incognito. We're gone, right? There's none of that happening. Look down at your Bibles, right? In verse 16 and 17, notice how many times Paul goes forth, back and forth between the spiritual and physical oneness in these verses. He says, you join with them or you become one with them. Notice what Paul uses for his illustration. He uses the lowest kind of sex imaginable, sex with prostitutes. If there was ever a sex that was just physical, it would be that one. Think about it. There's no, it's a stranger. There's no commitment other than money. And you might, you'll never see each other again. Yet Paul says, even in that short, impersonal encounter, there is a soul joining happening. Church, this is a serious matter. Which is why the second point is Christ died to redeem our bodies. Note again in verse 14, God raised up the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. Christ didn't just die on the cross to pay for our guilt and our sins. He was resurrected in his physical body in order to redeem our bodies. Had the body not been important, God would have just accepted Jesus' death on the cross for our payment of our sins and been done with it. There would have been no need for a resurrection. But God resurrected Christ in a body, a physical body, and it shows us that he cares about our physical bodies. Which is why in verse 13, Paul says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. Meaning that Jesus should have lordship over everything he has purchased, including your bodies. Our verse today repeats body, I think around seven or eight times, depending on your translation which shows us the importance to the author that he has on our physical bodies. And it shows us that all of us, all of our body, all of our spirit, all of our mind, everything we do is for Jesus now. Which leads us to er, point three, which is God designed sex to reenact the most intimate parts of our relationship with him. To understand this, it might be helpful that we just quickly look at another spot in Scripture where Paul talks about the same idea. Ephesians 5, Paul says, in, 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 uh, uh, he says the same phrase that we see in 1 Corinthians 6. He says that two will become one flesh, which is a direct quote from the creation narrative in Genesis when God was creating the world and mankind. He says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, he says, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I say, and I'm saying that this refers to Christ and his church. It's pretty mind-blowing when you think about this concept and understand that the whole marriage covenant and sexual relationship reenacts Christ's relationship with the church. Think about it this way. When you make a covenant in marriage, it's just like your salvation covenant. You stand at an altar. You unite that everything that is yours, all of yours, is all of theirs forever. All your bad and good are hers, and all her bad and good are yours forever. They all become yours that day. And the wife takes on a new family name. You exchange rings. You celebrate with a meal. And then on the honeymoon night, you consummate the marriage. And out of that consummation, God normally brings about new life. 
And each of those steps illustrates the gospel. Let's look at the parallel. In salvation, you go to the altar, so to speak. Maybe you came to a physical altar. Maybe you went before the altar of God. You said, I do to Jesus. He already said, I do to you over 2,000 years ago. He's just been waiting there for you ever since. And, and, and as soon as you say, I do, that moment, you become his. All of his become yours, and all of yours becomes his. Now picture that with me for a moment. Who's the true benefactor here? What was all of yours? Things like shame, sin, and the absorbing of God's wrath that was due for you. Jesus did all of that on the cross willfully. And what was all of his that becomes yours? Things like righteousness, eternal life, and eternal inheritance with God all becomes yours. And then you took on a new family name. You ex- your exchange of rings was something called baptism. You celebrate your union with a meal called communion. And at your salvation, Jesus put his Holy Spirit in you, which out of comes forth new life. The Bible says you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Not refurbished. Brand new. Do you see it? Each step of the marriage preaches the gospel to the world. Even the complementary nature of two different genders, male and female, is a picture of our relationship with Christ. Our union with Christ is not a union of identicals. We're alike, but we are different. And God wrote that into all of creation. He used opposite pairs that were alike but different to produce the good in Genesis. For example, day and night, good. Sun and moon, good. Land and sea, good. Earth and heaven, good. And then on the ultimate day of creation, male and female, very good. And that was the setup for salvation. We, humanity, are united to Christ. Christ plays the role of male, who is the life giver. And we play the role, all the church, as the female, the life receiver. And, excuse me, sex is a picture of our role as the bride of Christ. And I know this will be unpopular, and that's okay, but same-sex marriage destroys that picture. It destroys it fundamentally all through creation. Marriage is supposed to be a union of two things which are alike, but different, complementary. They complement each other. Every part of marriage and sex illustrates the love and nature of God. So it's so far from being merely a satisfaction of a bodily urge. Sexuality is central to our humanity and central to our knowledge of God. And this is all building to Paul's conclusion, which is verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What's he saying? He's saying run away from it. Get away from this sexual sin because when you sin sexually, you sin against three different things. First, you sin against God. You perverse what God has designed sex to be. Any type of sex that is outside of a heterosexual marriage is a perversion of God's design for sex, which is meant to be an act of worship and self-giving love to others, and we turn it into selfish satisfaction for our own lusts. Secondly, he says, you sin against the person whom you're performing the act with because you're reducing them, sadly, to just an object to satisfy your physical desires. 
This is what's so disgusting about what the Corinthians are doing here. The Corinthians treated those prostitutes as disposable objects that were just there to satisfy them, not as image bearers of God. They should be treated with respect, not as objects. The world of casual sex and one-night stands does the exact same thing. It belittles the person. It dehumanizes them to the point of just an object that is there to serve you and not an image bearer of the Lord God. And it's a sin, and it's disgusting what we do to each other. And thirdly, it's a sin against yourself. Sex is so integrated in our souls that what we do with our bodies is profoundly has effects on our souls. Our other sins primarily hurt others. But Paul says sexual sin destroys you. It's damaging your own soul. When you join yourself to someone and then you walk away casually, it damages and deadens your soul. And the more you do it, the more damage you have to your soul. I like how Tim Keller puts it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is a book everyone should read on marriage. But he says, even if you are not legally married, when you are having sex with someone, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you. But the other person has no legal or social or moral responsibilities even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness. If two people are having sex but are not married, it makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. What Tim is saying and what Paul is saying is that it's impossible to have sex and not engage in the spiritual dimensions. God just designed us that way. And, the, and it's one of the main criticisms that we receive from the world as Christians, that Christians are anti-sex. Like, we don't appreciate its goodness enough. But I'm here to say the contrary, and so is the Word of God. That we understand just how amazing and good sex is, and how powerful it is, that we understand that God has to put limitations upon it. It's like a, wa- it's like a fish that swims in the water. They're free to swim in the water, but they have to stay in the boundary of the water. To be free. And God says, here are the perimeters that I've put up. You are free to swim in that. And it will be vastly greater and less destructive. Because it won't be destructive when it's kept in the context of the boundaries. Our culture actually preaches the opposite. They say sex is no big deal. That it's just biology. And people move through partners like I change clothing. It's like what Tim Keller says. He says, sex outside of marriage is not a sin because it's so bad, but because it's so good. People move into the intimacy of sex long before they even know how to repeat each other's names. And those relationships only last on average a few months because they're founded upon pleasure. And here's the the thing about pleasure is that once you get enough of it, you want more and more. And when that person can't give you what you want, you toss them to the road like an object. And we have to, as Christians, show the culture that people are not objects. That they are image bearers of God. That deserve commitment. And we dare not be used as an object and dare not have their body unless we covet with their soul. Because when they do, they are sinning against God, the person, and themselves. So Paul tells us to flee from sexual sins. Other temptations, God says, he tells us to endure, to withstand. But when it comes to sexual immorality, he tells us to flee from it. 
meaning don't put yourself in tempting positions. Why poke the bear? You poke him enough, he's going to wake up and kill you. Right? Don't mess around. Don't get as close as you can to the line without sinning. Because every time you take one step closer, you're desensitizing yourself to that sin. And before you know it, you're going to have a cabin on the other side of that line in full-fledged sin. And you're going to live there. That's how sin works. Nobody normally just wakes up and says, you know what, I'm just going to wake up and grotesquely sin today. But rather, you go through a series of little sins that lead you down the slippery slope. And then before you know it, you're in full-fledged major sin. Don't get close to the line. Stay away from it. Martin Luther said, man, if your head is made of butter, stay away from the fire. I love Luther. He has a way with words. <laughs> in church, in the, in the area of sexuality, we're all butter. So flee. Don't even try. Flee things like pornography. Drumheller might not have a thousand prostitutes walking the street, but we do have tens of thousands of pornographic websites accessible at our fingertips. Daily website visits to pornographic sites far surpass the website visits of Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. Combined. It doesn't even come close. And this is a growing problem among women as well. Specific, uh, statistically speaking, it's getting as close as 50-50 split. People tend to explain away the devastating reality of porn by saying that it's a victimless crime. But that is simply not true. Because the women are there on the screen are horribly abused. They suffer from eating disorders to maintain a look. And sadly, it's coming to light that many in the industry are victims of sex trafficking. So the more you demand it is the more women go missing off the street and are enslaved to this horrible, horrible sin. So I would say it's hardly victimless. But it's also damaging. It damages your brain and how you treat your spouse and the expectations you put upon them. Again, scientifically speaking, porn is proven to rewire your brain in fundamental ways. It trains your mind to look at men and women as objects that are there for your disposal. And it kills marriages every single day because you begin to see your spouse as an object that is only good for your satisfaction. This is no joke. One psychiatrist said that porn is more enslaving to people than heroin. And it's also proven to market itself to boys as young as 12. It's disgusting. Parents, hear me. This is not judgmental. Don't hear this as judgmental, but if you allow your kids to have phones or computers in their rooms at nighttime without protections or filters on your internet, you are being extremely unwise. Very unwise. Statistically speaking, it takes three times looking at porn to become an addict. Three times. Your job as a parent that God has given you is to protect your kids. Flee sexual immorality means that you take radical measures to separate yourself from it. Put filters on your internet, on your computers, on your phones. Maybe even get rid of that stuff from your home for a while and play some board games. I remember when I was in college, uh, a student at my Bible college, he gave his computer to another <coughs> person for a month because he, and he made himself go to the library and use the computers there. It was horribly inconvenient for him, but he knew he had to break the habit. Because as soon as the door shut, he knew it was game over. So if this is your struggle, listen to me. Flee from it. Do what you have to do to break the habit. Jesus is worth it. 
Fleeing means that you're not putting yourself in situations that will cause you to sin. Don't flirt with sexual sin. Just run from it. If you know a movie has explicit sex scenes, don't watch it. Oh, no, my wife's here. I'll be fine. No, you're not. Flee from it. Teens, don't hang alone with the opposite sex. Don't cuddle on couches. Don't lay down together. Don't put, your situa- put yourself in situations that you can't back out of. Don't think that, hey, I'll stop it before it goes too far. No, you won't. You're not thinking properly at that moment. Find accountability partners in your life who will check in on you, who are bold enough to call you out on your junk and who you can call at any time, day or night, and say the temptations are great. Pray for me. Help me. Because they often become too great. Flee, church, from sexual immorality. Not by trying harder, not by willpower, but by fleeing to Christ. Look at verse 19 as we begin to close. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Two things Paul points here. The blood of Jesus. He has purchased you from your sin. He died for all the ways that you are messed up and have messed up. And he, mean, and he deserves your sexual purity. And he gives you the ability to live in it. The second thing is he points to is the Holy Spirit. You may feel like you don't have strength to overcome this, and you're probably right, you don't. But Christ in you does. It's not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So church, flee to Jesus. He is worth it and he is greater than all the things that you can try to fill that void, fill that satisfaction with in your life. I know some of you maybe are sitting here thinking, it's too late. You don't know, pastor, the things I've done in my past. I have a sexual rap sheet that is a mile long. But hear this. I I, kind of briefly gazed over the most important part of these verses. Remember verses 9 to 11. He says, gives you this list of all uh, 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 all these people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. All these unrighteous people. And then he says in verse 11, so were some of you. But you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the spirit of our God. When you accept Christ into your life, believer, listen to me. He washes you. And he takes your guilt. There is a fountain filled with blood. And sinners who are plunged beneath its flow lose all their guilty stains. What are the best hymns, eh? I love that hymn. He sanctifies you. Sanctifies means he sets you apart. He makes you holy. And he makes you pure. Maybe you're a teenager or a young adult or even an older adult who has given them away sexually. Now you feel that you are permanently defiled. It's not true. Hear me, Jesus can sanctify you by his blood and spirit. And if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Maybe you're here and you feel like porn has already damaged your soul beyond repair. Hear me, he can restore you, sanctify you, and make you new. He justifies you, which means he removes your guilt before God. Jesus died for your sexual sin. He paid the full price of your disobedience. So now there is now therefore no condemnation, Romans 8.1 says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's one last group I must address because it's sticking out in these scriptures like an elephant in the room. 
If you're here and you're same-sex attracted, I want you to know, and, and you're saying, I want my body to glorify God, but I have desires I feel like I can't control that are sinful. Hear me. We all do. We all have desires that go opposite from God's will. And what God wants us to do, every single one of us, you're not special. I know the church makes this such a special sin, but it's no different. It's listed right there in the same list. We all have desires that go contrary to God, and he wants you and I to submit yourself to him and realize that he loves you and he accepts you, and he doesn't only just wash your guilt of of your sin, he also gives you strength to obey his commands, even though it may be difficult. To live obedience to God is difficult, and to do it out of your own strength, you will fail. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. If that's you, your same-sex attraction, I want you to come and talk with me. I'd love to get to know you, have conversations about this, look at Scripture together. You don't have to be afraid or ashamed. There is more forgiveness and acceptance and help in Jesus than there is sin in your body. For all of us, for all those with sexual sin, for all those with messed up desires, twisted desires, we can all alike be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. All sin makes us defiled before God and guilty before our King. All sin is alike to God. Jesus died for all of it. So my question is, have you accepted him? Have you given your life to Christ? Whether your biggest sins are sexual or not, have you had him come into your life and remove the stain of your sin and make you a new creation? That's my invitation for you to come forward if you'd like during our last song. I'll be up here up front. Come and talk. I would love to introduce you to Jesus, to see his life and his power enter into your life and change you to the core, to see you fulfill, finally fulfill that thing that you've been searching for, that God-sized hole within your heart. Come today and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ.